The Time Machine to Kill Hitler by Paul Martin. Two Israeli agents alter the past only to make the future much worse. By Paul Martin, 2020. Copyright Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audiobooks. This book is a work of fiction. Apart from well-known historical characters mentioned, any similarities to other persons living or dead is purely coincidental and unintentional. Dedicated to the memory of my father, Reverend Ken Martin, who always inspired me to be a keen student of history. Chapter 1. The Visitors It was a spring night in the Austrian Alps, at 2am on Mount Simile, a blinding flash of light blasted into view. A shrill noise exploded, then was gone, but continued echoing its way across the mountains. The nearest human, a sheep farmer, had stuck his head in the bath when he heard a loud noise blast through his house. Had he not been drunk, he may have investigated. In the days ahead, he would wonder why some of his sheep had gone blind and partially deaf, but he could not connect the dots. As the light died down, a small rectangular shape as long as a car and half as tall materialised. Two humanoid figures emerged. They had silver spacesuits and protective helmets on. One of them grabbed a high-beam torch, shone it around to make sure nobody had witnessed this bizarre event. The only sign of life was a few bleating sheep in the distance. He turned off the light to avoid undue attention. Then they took their helmets off. The first man was tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed and cleanly shaven. The other man was slightly shorter with dark curly hair and a thick moustache. The dark-haired man spoke. We made it, Jürgen. Yes, Siegfried. They chuckled. Jürgen's real name was Yarkov, and Siegfried's real name was Avraham. But they needed to hide their Jewish identity for this mission. Jürgen looked up. If my coordinates are correct, then this is Mount Simile, and we should be just 300 metres away from the cave. They took one end of the machine and started dragging it uphill. After a painstaking search, they reached the cave. The cave had hardly changed at all. They dragged the machine in, opened the top doors and lay down. They took their clothes off, then opened an old leather suitcase and got dressed. They put on socks and underwear, white shirts, brown trousers, rough brown jackets and leather shoes. Siegfried put on a hat and Jürgen a beret. The spacesuits were put back into the machine. They grabbed maps, papers and old black and white photographs and slipped them into an envelope. Then they opened another suitcase with wads of cash. They stuffed their pockets with it and put some in a small bag. One last final duty before leaving the cave. They lifted a brown blanket out of the machine 
and covered it. It was now 6am. They began descending the hill. One hour later, they could see civilization in the distance. There were no cars in the village, only horse-drawn carriages. They made their way to the town centre and found a newspaper left on the ground. The date on the paper was 3rd April 1903. The machine had not worked perfectly. They were out by a year, but it did not matter. The makers of the machine had taken this into account. Now that they knew when they were, the next thing was to find where. It was a place called Brenhof, probably a population of 300. But they had an important location to find. After breakfast in a tavern, they found a room in the upstairs to hire. So what now? asked Jürgen. Well, according to the records, he lives in Leonding. He's almost 14 years old. He goes to a local school. Here is his picture. Jürgen looked at the old black and white photo of the haunting little boy with his classmates. I guess buying a car is out of the question here, ventured Jürgen. Siegfried replied. The innkeeper told me there is a bike shop in a nearby village ten kilometres away. We'll go there tomorrow and begin making our way to Leonding. They spent the rest of the day speculating on how to carry out the mission and how many Plan Bs they could contemplate. They spoke in hushed, quiet tones. They went to bed early for the long day ahead. Chapter 2. The Assassination Early the next morning, they headed to the bike shop. After an hour, they hitched a ride from a farmer in a horse-drawn carriage. Eventually, they reached the town and found the bike shop. The bikes were not very comfortable and required more work. Hours later, they were close to Leonding. Siegfried said, mission almost accomplished. Siegfried bought a violin and Jürgen bought knives, hammers and a few other tools. They booked into a hotel and left their things. There were no maps of the town, so they had to spend the evening walking around casing the joint till they found the address. Then they worked out the best route from the destination so they could flee in a great hurry. Hours later, in the hotel room, they planned their course of action. Siegfried said, it must be done at night so we can run away unseen. We must stay here as short as possible so we're not easily recognised and identified. But ultimately, if we must die in the process, it is worth it. Jürgen nodded. Nightfall came. They threw the violin aside and put the tools in the violin case. They walked out of the hotel, certain they were unnoticed. They headed hastily and quietly across the town, 
Wherever they could see a night watchman or pedestrian, they discreetly headed down an alleyway. They did not want their faces imprinted in the memory of anyone. Eventually, they came upon a large light yellow house with red tiles and trees surrounding it. There were no lights on. They approached the front door. Written in brass were the words, Alois and Clara Hitler. Let's do this, said Jürgen. The front door was made of solid timber. Breaking it open would make enough noise to wake the dead. The door had mistakenly been left unlocked. But without bothering to check, they headed around the back. Much to their annoyance, they found all the windows were too high up. Siegfried found an old wooden chair and put it up against the window. He climbed up to the window sill, but before he made it, the chair and he landed on the ground. A sharp wooden stake cut into his thigh and he just managed to muffle a scream. I'm fine, let's do this, he said. He was bleeding badly, but remarked, We'll worry about the pain later. He lifted Jürgen this time and managed to make the window sill. Then he opened the violin case and found a crowbar. He threw it up to Jürgen, who flung his hand out, but missed. The crowbar landed mercilessly across Siegfried's face, and he collapsed, winded with the crowbar, on his chest. About a second later, Jürgen landed on top of Siegfried's chest, making his previous pain seem trivial. Let's do this again, said Siegfried. This time he caught the crowbar and broke open the window. It made more noise than they expected and it was a matter of time before the Hitler family would be awake. They had to act quickly. Jürgen pulled Siegfried up and he came in with a small thud. While he was getting himself together, Jürgen ran ahead. He opened the door of the room and suddenly screamed. He was hit across the face with an iron rod used for stoking fires. He yelled in agony as he collapsed on the floor and the light was turned on. A blue-eyed, brown-haired woman began mercilessly hitting him in the ribs and groin with her iron rod, not aware that there were two intruders. When she saw Siegfried lunge at her, it was too late as he cut her throat. She collapsed with a loud thud, but not before she had released a shrill shriek. Siegfried grabbed a vase and emptied the water on Jürgen's face and kicked him. Get up, you half-wit. We've got work to do. Without a complaint, they walked upstairs as their adrenaline rush gave them strength to cope. There were several rooms, Siegfried said. You try that room. I'll try the other two. Jürgen entered the room on the left and saw a terrified girl of about seven cowering in the corner. You must be Paula Hitler, 
She nodded with a look of shock and terror. What have you done to my mummy? She asked. The same thing I'm going to do to you. Dead girls don't tell tales, he remarked. She offered no resistance as he cut her throat. He followed Siegfried into the next room. There stood the future Führer of Nazi Germany, a man who would be hated by millions for decades to come. But now he was just a boy. He stood ready with an iron pipe in hand, looking at the men defiantly. Siegfried looked at him. So you are Adolf Hitler. What do you want? he asked as his bravado failed to hide a slight quiver in his voice. We are Jews from the future to save our race from being genocided by you, said Siegfried. Jürgen was just speechless and looked intently at the young boy. I've never hurt the Jews. I, I even have a Jewish friend at school, the young boy said. I know, said Siegfried. But I know your future. The boy swung his metal pipe, which missed, and he was no match for the highly trained Israeli agent. He was stabbed three times in the stomach. Go and check no one's approaching, Siegfried said to Jürgen. After Jürgen left the room, Siegfried laid the dying boy on the bed and was overcome with rage. He thought about his nasty wife who had left him and the haunted faces of Holocaust victims and began frantically stabbing the boy long after he had gone silent. A few minutes later, Siegfried and Jürgen were running away from the house. They had noticed some lights turned on in the houses and it would be a matter of time before suspicions were raised. They had turned out all the lights to the Hitler house. Neighbours might suspect each other, but not the Hitler house. Going back to the hotel was out of the question and they needed to leave the town before being identified. Jürgen noticed that he was blinded in his left eye after his surprise attack from Clara Hitler. His groin was in agony. He had at least a few broken ribs. They walked all night and continued until midday the next day. They avoided towns so as not to draw attention. Siegfried's leg had bled badly and stained his trousers. He would limp for the rest of his life. They swapped headgear. Jürgen shaved off his moustache and Siegfried began growing a beard and moustache. They slept under a small tree and washed in a river. When they looked a bit more presentable, they discreetly snuck into an expensive tailor shop and bought some fine clothing, silk shirts and grey suits with matching hats. Jürgen got an eye patch as his left eye was permanently blind. They stayed at a hotel, but this time they booked in separate rooms so no one would know they knew each other. They spent the day and evening recovering from their ordeal, catching lost sleep and eating gluttonously after 48 hours of being on-the-road fugitives. The one night, 
turned into two days of relaxation. Then they headed back to Mount Simile. Now it was time to begin the second part of their mission. Chapter 3 The Knock on the Door Jürgen and Siegfried headed up to the hill and back to their cave. Nobody had interfered in almost two weeks away. They removed the blanket and opened the time machine. Siegfried drew out a bottle of wine to celebrate a mission accomplished. They also pondered the miserable lives they had left before going on their mission. Siegfried was born and bred in Israel, decades into the 21st century. He had grown up on a kibbutz before moving to Tel Aviv as a Shin Bet agent. He had excelled and later trained Jürgen and many others. Siegfried was happily married, at least he thought so, until one day his wife left him for another man and cut him dead. After a suicide attempt, he was put on watch and analysed by a psychiatrist. He then became dependent on antidepressant drugs. Jürgen had provided great support to Siegfried. He, like his colleague, was an only child. So they came to see themselves as brothers. As Siegfried was beginning to cope with his grief, tragedy struck again. Jürgen's parents were killed in a bombing by a Palestinian militant. His parents were among several Israelis killed in a bus with a landmine under it. He felt quite alone in the world and was admitted into a psychiatric ward one week later. After six months, Siegfried was discharged, followed by Jürgen a month later. The two moved into a flat together with shared living expenses. Late one evening, they received a knock at the door. An old man with a balding head, spectacles, a white coat and a beady and ambitious look faced them. Gentlemen, may I come in? he asked, grinning. Who are you? asked Jürgen. He produced a membership card of Mossad and the 21st century Israeli science innovations. Pleased to meet you, Professor Shaul Leibovitz, said Jürgen. What can we do for you? I would just like to have a chat with you fine gentlemen, he said, sitting down on the lounge. What I am about to share with you is of the utmost importance concerning national security and the future and strength of the Jewish people. I'll stop you there, said Siegfried. We are on stress leave. Gentlemen, I know all about what you're going through, and I've studied your reports from the psychiatric hospital. I was sent here by the Israeli Defence Authorities. First, I should tell you a little bit about myself. Many years ago, I went through a very rough experience where my wife left me. She took our baby daughter with her to America, cut me dead. I went into a state of shock. I was on the verge of suicide, feeling completely numb. A month later, my mother was killed in a car accident. I was struggling to make ends meet and I was on the verge of giving up. 
I joined the IDF again and channeled my pain against my enemies. Because I was suicidal, I did many risky things that won me promotions. I was able to work for Mossad. I became wealthy, strong, happy and courageous. Most of what Leibovitz was saying was complete fiction. He was following a motivational script to recruit these men for a reckless mission. He had had a very comfortable life. He had never risked his life for anyone or anything. But he needed to manipulate them with a tragic sob story. The two men listened captivated. He went on, You see, what helped me cope in these circumstances was to get busy doing something that made me feel important and valuable, saving my people and my country. I assassinated numerous Iranian extremists and I infiltrated Mujahideen terror cells in Afghanistan. Those dumb ragheads never stood a chance, he added with a chuckle. When I had come to terms with my pain, I was able to enroll in a science degree where I majored in physics. And your assignment, well, I would give anything to be in your shoes. They looked at him dumbfounded. Um, I think we would give anything to be in your shoes, said Jürgen. Professor Leibovitz unbuttoned the top of his shirt to reveal a cut down the middle of his chest. That was from a heart bypass last year. Besides, I'm too old. At 77, I have to be humble enough to admit I can't do everything. However, cunning and devious Professor Leibovitz may have been, he had a magnetic personality. After weeks of moping around the house, Jürgen and Siegfried were starting to feel alive, as if rising out of the mire to a higher plane. His radiant smile offered a glimmer of hope that made them want to follow wherever he might lead them. Anywhere, in fact. Are you familiar with physics? They shook their heads. Okay, let me explain simply. In the last few decades, scientific knowledge has dramatically increased, so much so that it doubles every few days. In other words, we've made more discoveries these last five days than the rest of human history put together. The very fabric of time, space, energy and matter is no longer such a mystery. And recently, even time travel has become a reality Sort of. The two men stared at him, transfixed. Are you interested? They looked at each other, then back at the professor. Yes, they said simultaneously. There is a secret laboratory in the Negev desert where they've developed a machine capable of moving everything in it back in time and across space. With these possibilities, we could reverse many of the great sufferings the Jews have gone through throughout history. Pogroms, massacres, mass slaughter, forced conversions, holocausts. There is just one major problem. And what would that be? said Siegfried. 
The time machine can work safely once. Anything beyond that runs the risk of not working and causing a black hole explosion, which would wipe out all life for all time. In other words, we must choose just one event to go back and change. The professor paused for them to take this in. So, if I send you back to kill the pharaoh who enslaved us, well, nobody even knows for sure when that event occurred. If I send you back to kill Haman, that would be redundant. Esther made short work of him. If I send you back to stop a medieval massacre, you would only save a few thousand Jews, but not millions. So we go back in time to kill Hitler and the Nazis, ventured Jürgen. Unless you can think of a more horrific event, he said, with a hint of humour. They all chuckled. Three days later, Jürgen and Siegfried were travelling in Professor Leibovitz's BMW through the Negev desert. It was therapeutic in the fresh air with the sun shining brightly. They had spent days at a time sleeping for half the day, then watching TV until late at night and going to bed at 3am. Their dysfunctional lives had threatened to ruin any future career in the Shin Bet. The three of them had a great feeling of impending excitement and adventure. Chapter 4 The Secret Lab As they drove through the desert, Siegfried wondered how much better they would be if they spent more time irrigating the desert and working with their own hands living off the land than in an unnatural suburban environment. The Negev desert was an empty treasure waiting to blossom like a rose. Jürgen hated the Nazis and regretted not being alive to kill them. He was a keen student of history and somewhat religious. He felt a deep spiritual passion on embarking on what he saw with this mission. He daydreamed of being up there in Jewish history with its greatest heroes like Moses, Esther, Bar Kokhba, Theodore Herzl, the Warsaw Ghetto Fighters and David Ben-Gurion. After two hours of driving through the desert, they arrived at the laboratory. It was surrounded by razor wire fences and signs warning of landmines. There were machine gun armed guards in towers at the fences. The professor showed his ID to the guard who said nothing. He studied them while two more guards looked under their car. They entered a car park. Out of the ground, a metal door opened and the professor drove in. They got out and followed a security guard into an elevator. They went about 200 metres down and walked into a room they had never seen the likes of except in James Bond films. A plump, grinning man with a black skull cap and blue Israeli uniform stood waiting for them. Jürgen and Siegfried were startled to see Ariel Rubenstein, the Israeli Defence Minister. He shook hands and told them it was an honour to meet them. Next to him stood a clean-shaven, blonde, curly-haired man in a suit 
with glasses. Who are you? asked Jurgen. The man looked livid at the lack of recognition and just stared at them. The defence minister sheepishly added, You all know him, Arthi Lechim, a member of the Knesset. The man sulked and shunned them for the remainder of the meeting. It was obvious that Ariel and Arthi were not on good terms. The five of them walked into a lab room. In the centre stood a silvery cubed machine attached to a platform for spinning. Ariel looked proudly and added, Here it is, my friends, the machine that can save six million Jews, millions of others, and prevent the Second World War from occurring. According to the calculations, we can send this machine back in time with about 95% accuracy, give or take a few years. The machine also has the ability to hold the passengers in suspended animation while time passes by. That will be necessary for the second part of the mission. The first part of the mission, you will go to Austria, seek out Adolf Hitler, and kill him and his family. You will be as inconspicuous as possible. This will ensure that the evilest Nazi of all time, with the most persuasive charisma, never rises to rule Germany. Assassinating a dumb, unsophisticated person in the late 19th century is one of the easiest things you'll ever do he remarked smugly. We know everything about the past while they know nothing about the future. Despite Hitler being killed, it does not ensure that Nazis or anti-Semites will not rise to power in Germany. They may well do so, although they will be nowhere as effective without the Fuhrer. Avi rolled his eyeballs in disdain. Ariel continued, so we will send you back to the late 19th or early 20th century before Hitler is famous and you can finish him off then. It is not advisable, however, for you to live through all the anarchy of World War I or the Great Depression. And besides, you would be elderly men by that time. So your machine will speed up and bring you to the future in a short time to the late 1920s, and you will be aged just a few minutes. So if Himmler or Goebbels becomes Germany's Chancellor, instead of some anti-Semitic regime comes to power, it can be easily overthrown by you guys. Once that is completed, you will speed up the machine to the present time and tell us how your mission went. Siegfried looked baffled. How exactly would we do that? You might assassinate one of the leaders, although given that Hitler survived over 40 assassination attempts, it's probably not a good idea. Instead, you will seek out Albert Einstein and give him a letter. That's all you need to worry about for now. Ariel paused and looked over at Arvi, giving him the signal to say his piece. Arvi gave them all a patronising and scornful look and turned away from them. He said, Believe me, gentlemen, 
I fantasized many times of killing Hitler and the Nazis. And after what I've observed of this technology, I don't doubt that it really does work. But when you change the past, you can change many more things. And there is a possibility that the whole operation could backfire. You think that Hitler is something unique or special. No, he wasn't. He was an ordinary man who filled a vacuum. The Holocaust and World War II were foundational events that helped in the creation of the State of Israel. Without Hitler, we would not be the tough Israeli nation of today. And millions would not have been motivated to leave Europe and come here. I have to admire your devotion to the Fuhrer, said Ariel sarcastically. Avi ignored the remark and continued. When I look at how strong and safe our nation is, I think of those cliches. If the fence ain't broke, don't mend it. And the other one is, quit while you're ahead. Try telling that to the millions who perished or starved in Poland, snapped the professor. Avi shrugged and continued without looking at them. Who are you to play God and change history? You could change things for the worse. I don't believe that rubbish, said Jürgen. Besides, there's no excuse for us to let six million Jews die. This is insane. I will oppose it and do all in my power to stop this madness, said Avi calmly. And then he abruptly left. Ariel grinned optimistically, then addressed the remaining three. As you can see, we have tough opposition from the powers that be, and without their clearance, this cannot succeed. But I'm confident these bureaucrats will see reason. In the meantime, I've got some books for you each to read, and I've highlighted the parts to study in particular. The Young Hitler I Knew, by August Kubisek, Mein Kampf and Hitler's Table Talk. I also have many facts on Hitler and his early life to study and memorise. I've included old maps of Austria and Germany at the time, and you will be tested on this. You are now officially employed by Mossad. Chapter 5. Training Day. Jürgen and Siegfried were transferred to a remote training camp in the Negev desert. They were tested in martial arts, hand-to-hand -hand combat, assassination skills, breaking and entering burglary, and had to brush up on the German language. All their instructions were to be in German, and within a few days they had started to pick it up almost fluently. Their own instructors were not even told about their mission. They had a strict diet of raw fruit and vegetables, lean meat and organic bread. The changed diet made them happier, less tired and more alive than they had ever felt. The two men made a secret pact to hunt down Arvi and kill him should he pull the plug on them. They were taking the mission very seriously. It had resurrected them from a depressing slumber and had given them purpose and meaning in life. After one month of training, 
they were sent on a tour of Austria. They would build on their fluency of the German language and pick a landing site for the time machine. They would determine the exact coordinates. The best option seemed to be a cave in Mount Simile. A special device from the laboratory was buried downhill from the cave which would make the machine travel through time and space from the Negev desert to the Austrian Alps. After a month, they returned. They were now on leave from training and returned to their apartment. A sixth sense said their home was bugged. But what did they have to worry about? It would only be the Israeli government and they had nothing to fear or hide from them. Two days after returning to Israel, they received a phone call late at night. It was the professor. Good evening, gentlemen. I trust you know to be ready at a moment's notice for this mission. You can bet your life on it, said Jürgen. Well, how does the next half hour sound? The professor said. Jürgen was speechless with excitement. The professor went on. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but they told us to be at the laboratory in the next few hours. Fingers crossed it could be tonight. I have no words to describe my extreme excitement. Half an hour later, there was a knock at the door. An IDF officer was waiting. Avraham and Yakov, I'm here to escort you to your meeting. They were ushered into an armoured car where the professor was waiting with an excited look of glee. There were armed soldiers sitting with them. The excitement fought off any tiredness they felt. Eventually they reached their destination. Procedure was slightly different this time. They were ushered through like civilians and all three men were subjected to a body frisk and an x-ray scanning for any weapons. They entered a room away from the actual lab where the time machine was. The men suppressed any bad omen feelings that nagged at them. They were made to sit in their seats while armed guards looked at them intently. After what seemed like hours but was only 20 minutes, a man in a suit walked in. He grabbed a chair opposite them. It was Arvi. He did not look as rude or condescending this time and looked them in the eyes. Jürgen, Siegfried, welcome back. I see you've lost weight and gained a bit in muscle. I'm impressed. They smiled and nodded. I expect you've put one hell of an effort into this project. They sheepishly nodded. And I sympathise with how much time and energy you put into this. Israel needs strong men like you who can defend our great nation. The skills you learned here will help you in other endeavours. That did not sound good, at least not coming from Arvi. A lot of research has been done since we last met. There is a huge risk that if the machine works, it might kill you. Another risk is that it may transport you to a parallel universe. 
You could also fail at this mission, and even if you succeed, you could make the future worse, or not even affect it at all. In a nutshell, there are too many risks that outweigh anything we might achieve. It's not worth the risk. The free time-travelling enthusiasts were stunned. Arvi put his hands over the wrists of Jürgen and Siegfried in an empathetic, fatherly manner. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but this is an insane fairy tale. Professor Leibovitz opened his mouth, but Arvi cut in. I don't want to hear what you have to say, you crazy old geezer. If you know what's good for you, you will let go of this insanity. And so will you too. Don't mess with us. We'll be watching you. Unless you want to spend the rest of your life in a tiny prison cell instead of your ample vineyard farm, don't mess with us. It was no idle threat. Arvi stood still with his arms folded and signalled to the armed guards. They were escorted out. Siegfried and Jürgen sat in stunned silence, too gutted to talk for the remainder of the trip. Professor Leibovitz muttered angrily to himself the whole time, momentarily looking up at the men, saying words to the effect that this wasn't over and he would petition the Knesset. Chapter 6 Escape Two days later, during the afternoon, there was a knock on the door. Jürgen opened it to a short, plump Palestinian man with grey hair and a moustache. He wore green clothing and a red and white headdress. He was holding a bunch of purple roses. He was about to ask his purpose when Jürgen suddenly said, Hey, I know you. You're Farouk, the gardener for Prof... The man quickly put his finger to his lips, signalling to be quiet. He then held out the flowers and Jürgen took them. Farouk stood in the doorway and nodded his head at the flowers. He saw an envelope with a letter inside. It read, Dear Jürgen and Siegfried, do not say or do anything suspicious in your flat. You are under constant surveillance. I gave you my word that I would not let this go. Let's just say I have a machine in the underground bunker of my house. This mission will succeed. If you are interested, then meet my niece and her friend at Tel Aviv Beach in 48 hours from now. They will find you. They will take care of inconspicuously getting you to my house. That is all I can say at this stage. Destroy this message after reading it. Are you still interested in accomplishing this mission? If so, give a nod to Farouk. Your friend always, Shaul Leibovitz. Jürgen nodded to Farouk, and Farouk winked back at him. Then he said, no, sir, you have the wrong address. Farouk walked away with the flowers. The letter was written on soft tissue, so he used it as toilet paper. Later that afternoon, he went for a jog with Siegfried, 
when he was sure they were out of range of any surveillance, he conveyed to Siegfried, who was also enthusiastic, to take part. Two days later, early in the morning, they headed off to the beach. Let's find some hot chicks, get drunk and get laid. One hour later, they were sitting on towels on the sand after an enjoyable swim in the sea. They kept looking around at girls for any sign of Leibovitz's niece and her friend. They had no idea what they looked like. What if those girls had been neutralised and the Shin Bet sent someone else to impersonate them? But what if they were being too paranoid and would miss the opportunity? It might be their last chance. Two girls who seemed to be attracted to them and in a flirty mood were looking in their direction. This could be them, said Siegfried. The two of them approached the girls and began chatting. No sooner were they about to strike up a conversation when two other girls came from behind Jürgen and Siegfried and laid a hold of one of them each. The two flirty girls at once looked awkwardly. Stay away from our boyfriends, you sluts, she said curtly. The girls gave a look of shock at the unexpected arrivals and walked off offended. Who the hell are you, began Siegfried, but the girl dug her claws into his arm. He looked her in the face. She had black plaited hair, brown eyes and freckles. So you're the niece, he whispered. Yep, that's me. We don't have much time. I'm Hannah, by the way. This is Adassah, my best friend. Adassah, who stood with Jürgen, had light brown hair and green eyes. The four of them sat down pretending to have randomly met. The girls produced an esky of cold beer bottles. Trust me, it's energy drink, she mouthed as quietly as possible. They began to drink more and acted slightly drunk. The Shinbet spy had followed from their flat to the beach. He was pretty sure Jürgen and Siegfried did not have girlfriends. Was this a small detail his boss forgot to mention? Just then the four of them got up and headed away from the beach to the road and hailed an automatic driverless taxi. Jürgen and Siegfried looked in the rearview mirror. One of the beachgoers had jumped into another driverless taxi behind them. Hannah typed in the address, then inserted the money. The taxi took off and was being followed at a distance. After about 20 minutes, they arrived at the girl's apartment. The Shinbet spy stood in the hallway and waited. Hannah put a movie on with the volume turned up. Hadassah took the men into the bathroom and began applying makeup to their faces. It was mostly put around the eyes. Then Hannah came with four black Islamic veils, leaving only the eyes seen. She then grabbed two bras with stuffing in them. Five minutes later, the Shin Bet spy received a call from his colleague who was spying outside the rear of the apartment. Listen, David. I see four Muslim women climbing down the fire escapes at the apartment. Two of them leaped several metres to the ground and caught the other two. 
They sound more like ninjas. That's our target. Follow them, David ordered. The second spy followed them down the street and came to an automatic driverless limousine. Standing outside waiting for the four Muslim women was Farouk. He bowed chivalrously and opened the door for them. As they bundled in, Farouk then entered the front part of the vehicle, inserted the money and it took off. The five of them had a good laugh as they saw the frantic Israeli agent racing after them, signalling to stop. He pulled out a pistol only to simultaneously trip over a brick and go flying into a row of garbage bins. How did you enjoy being Muslim women, said Jürgen sarcastically. He stopped and turned around to see if Farouk had hurt him. It's okay, said Hannah. He's a Druze. Druzes were among the pro-Israel Arabs. The limousine continued for half an hour. Eventually they were out of town and travelled through some vineyards. In a fenced-off farm, the limousine halted. Farouk exited the vehicle and punched in a secret code. The gates opened and the limousine went in. Keep yourselves properly veiled until you're inside, said Farouk. Professor Leibovitz gave a hug and kiss to his niece. I'm so proud of you. He hugged Hadassah as well. He then put his arms around Jürgen and Siegfried. Well done, my sons. Are you ready to fulfil your destiny? They nodded silently. They washed the makeup off their faces and removed the bras. Leibovitz said, We have little time. We're being monitored, so it's a matter of when, not if, Israeli agents storm in to arrest or kill us. The two girls and Farouk grabbed machine guns and stood guard, ready to delay any surprise raid by the authorities. The second spy woke up feeling dazed. He looked and saw David standing over him. Professor Leibovitz led the men downstairs to an underground cellar. To their astonishment, they saw a silver cube machine. I left nothing to chance and made one myself without letting the authorities know, remarked Leibovitz. A part of me always suspected they would pull the plug. Hanging up on the wall were two uniforms that resembled spacesuits. You'll need these for your protection from radiation poisoning, said Leibovitz. They changed into their suits. There were helmets to fit on last. The professor then opened the machine. There were two soft beds for each of them. Underneath your beds are clothes, early 20th century German money, lots of jewellery in case you need to form exchange for money, an almanac of the 20th and 21st centuries, books on the Second World War, medication, a volume of science discoveries and a letter to give to Albert Einstein. The letter to Einstein contains very important mathematical formulas which will alter the course of history on whoever has them. 
Once inside the machine, press the green button. That will send you back to the preset time of 1900. Afterwards, the red button will send you forward to 1932. Eventually, you can fast forward to the present time. There's also a guide your counter to monitor radiation for your own safety. The password is Rumpelstiltskin. At this point, they heard gunfire and a woman's scream. The professor's face went pale. Not my niece, not my angel, Hannah, he quivered. She died for a just cause, said Jürgen. Abort this mission, this is madness. I didn't expect it to go this far, said Leibovitz. Jürgen and Siegfried looked at him in stunned bewilderment. We didn't come this far just for you to cower out at the last second, said Siegfried. We can stop it now. We'll negotiate with the authorities. We may still persuade them to do this mission. I'm ordering you to stop. The professor drew a pistol out of his pocket. Jürgen and Siegfried knew they would receive no mercy from the Israeli government for treason and terrorism. The dream of what might have been would torment them for the rest of their miserable lives, and it was unlikely they would be executed. They would just rot away for decades in tiny cells with no one to shed a tear for them, all because they wanted to save Jewish lives. Before the professor could get a proper grip of his gun, Siegfried lunged at him, kneeing him in the ribs as hard as he could, and finished it off with a hard punch to the throat. The professor collapsed dead on the floor. At this point, machine gun fire had hit the door to the cellar. Jürgen and Siegfried had not a second to lose and they leapt into the machine and closed the doors. Through the glass they saw an Israeli SWAT team entering just as Jürgen hit the green button. Had they fired on it, the mission would have been aborted. Instead, they hesitated in awe and amazement at the sight of the machine beginning to spin. Two seconds later, lightning exploded everywhere, incinerating the armed soldiers who had blanked out until it was too late. Everything went pitch black and the two men could feel themselves being flung through space in the most indescribable feeling imaginable. For moments, they worried if their machine would not work and would leave them floating somewhere in space. Suddenly, the machine came to a grounding halt. They felt incredibly nauseous. It came back to life, saying they had arrived in Austria, 1900. They grabbed their high-beam torches and opened the doors. Their adventure had just begun. Chapter 7 The Third Reich Thirties After the first part of the adventure was completed, they entered the machine and pressed the red button. The time machine spun at close to the speed of light, which made time outside the machine pass much quicker.
if my calculations are correct, this should be 1934. Let's see what impact we made on history. They headed downhill from the cave. Their bikes had rusted. The hill looked different, with trees not previously there, but some parts, like rocks, still looked familiar. They noticed a large town not previously there from about 12 kilometres from Mount Simile. The town had a sign, Rundstadt, population 4,000. Near the entrance to the town was a large monument of the German eagle holding the iron cross beneath it. It appeared to be about late afternoon. There were tall white houses lining the streets and flag banners everywhere. They were not the flags of the Weimar Republic, but the black, white and red coloured flag with the German iron cross in the middle. There were no swastikas anywhere to be seen. They stopped by a bakery to check on food prices to determine monetary values. What they needed now was cash and lots of it. Their own counterfeit money printed by Professor Leibovitz wasn't worth the paper it was written on. The German currency had been changed in this alternative future. As they approached the shops, they saw Sol Rubenstein's fine jewellery, cash for jewels, written underneath. They walked in. A stressed-looking man eyed them suspiciously. Yes? Shalom, said Siegfried. The man looked alarmed and did not return the greeting. Are you from the government or police, he asked. Neither. We want nothing to do with them, said Jürgen. We have some jewellery to sell you. Siegfried produced three gold rings. Give me a moment, said the jeweller. He disappeared behind a curtain and came back moments later. OK, the gold rings will get you about 20 Deutschmarks each. That's preposterous, said Siegfried. That's the value of about five loaves of bread for each ring. Well, where have you been living the last four years? These rings would get a lot of money in America, but here in Germany they're not worth pig shit. And why is that? Siegfried asked. He rolled his eyeballs. The German government has withdrawn from the world banking system. These pariahs choose not to value gold, so it only has sentimental value. Do you have any diamonds? Siegfried dug into his pocket. This is worth a bit more. <coughs> so in exchange for Leibovitz's priceless heirlooms, they walked out of the shop with 300 Deutschmarks, now to find a hotel for the night. A voice from behind said, What's your name? Siegfried spun around. A little blonde girl with a traditional German dress, about ten years old, was eyeing them confidently and intently. Um, my name's Siegfried, this is Jürgen, she smiled. Siegfried frowned. Listen, little girl, don't you know it's dangerous to talk to strangers and does your mummy know you're out this late? Yeah, she knows. 
Well, she should have enough sense to keep you indoors at this time. There are creepy, dangerous men that would harm a little girl like you. She grinned broadly, as if they had said something corny and she was trying not to laugh at them. No, there aren't. They're all dead. Siegfried looked dumbfounded, so she continued. The SS killed them all. Their hearts almost missed a beat. Before they could ask her more, they saw a silhouette emerging out of the shadows. A tall man approached them. He had a black SS uniform that looked slick and immaculate. A pistol was around his waist. He stared at them with piercing, beady brown eyes, but gave a friendly professional smile. He had a blue armband. It was an outline of Germany with an eagle over it. He had a patch with the SS lightning bolts on his chest. No swastika anywhere. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am SS officer Carl Ingus. May I help you? Hello, officer, replied Jürgen. We are travelling north to look for work in the steel factories in the Rhineland. We need a cheap hotel for the night. Carl affectionately touched the girl on the cheek and said, Go home, princess. She skipped away a few houses down and walked inside. Then he looked back up at them. Well, you won't have any trouble finding work. It's booming there. Yes, that's why we're heading north, said Siegfried. He resisted the temptation to ask for an update on Germany over the past decades. That would be suspicious. Had they not impressed him by caring about his daughter, he would have asked to see their papers, which would have really complicated things. If he had suspected they were sexual predators, he would have simply put a bullet in their brains. There's a nice inn called the Barbarossa, two streets down in that direction. I think they charge about 30 Deutschmarks a night. I'll walk you there. Before they could object, he walked ahead of them, and they followed. At the hotel, the officer banged the bell and yelled for service. A balding man in his fifties rushed to the counter. Hi, Fritz. These two gentlemen need a room for the night. Jürgen approached the man at the counter. I believe you charge 30 Deutschmarks a night? He opened his mouth as if to say yes, then fearfully eyed the SS officer. No, my good sir, it is 25, he quivered. They produced the money and headed upstairs. All the best, gentlemen, remarked Karl as he headed off. Jürgen and Siegfried were too exhausted to think properly and felt nauseated. I thought we succeeded in our mission, said Jürgen. And yet we see a Germany that is militaristic and a pariah state, replied Siegfried. Maybe they are nationalistic but not anti-Semitic, said Jürgen optimistically. I think we made history better. Or worse, perhaps, asked Siegfried. Don't be so cynical, snapped Jürgen. We definitely killed their beloved Führer and changed history. And that's good enough for me.
Chapter 8 Hitler the Martyr Siegfried slept like a log, so Jürgen got up at 10am and headed to the town centre. There he saw a man selling books on a stand. Most were frivolous romance novels, magazines and a few comic books. But he wanted something on politics and recent history. Then he saw a book that made him gasp. He handed the vendor two Deutschmarks for the tacky booklet and headed back to the hotel. Siegfried was now wide awake, staring into space nonchalantly. In walked Jürgen, who threw a booklet on his chest. It was entitled, The Jewish Ritual Murder of the Hitler Family, by Julius Stryker. He opened the front cover and looked at a photo of a statue of a mother and two children. The inscription read, lest we forget the victims of the satanic Jewish murderers who broke into and murdered the Hitlers in their Passover sacrifice. He then turned to the back cover, which was even more of a shock. It read, before he became our beloved Chancellor, Julius Stryker was a decorated hero of the Great War who went on to fight heroically against the Jews and their New World Order. Many tried to sue him and intimidate him into silence. By fighting on the streets, his party grew in leaps and bounds, until he led the German Socialist Party to victory in the 1930 elections. The opening of the book read, in April 1903, the stench of rotting corpses drew neighbours to investigate the Hitler household. They consisted of the widow Clara and her son Adolf and daughter Paula. A very violent and brutal entry was made into her house. A bold struggle was put up by Mrs Hitler, whose throat was slashed. Paula's throat was cut and with no evidence of a struggle. But the reason this book is written is because of the manner in which the young Adolf's body was found. He had multiple stab wounds in his chest. A Jewish star of David was written in blood on his forehead. This is evidence of Jewish ritual murder. The motive for killing them remains a mystery to this very day. Friends of Adolf say he was a pan-German nationalist and a rather unremarkable boy in every way. Police found the fingerprints of 20 people in the house. 18 of them were family and friends who could all be accounted for. The remaining two have never been found. There were many outbreaks of violence against Jews after this incident. One local, Mr Avraham Leibovitz, was punched in the head during a brawl and later died of a brain hemorrhage. Now explain yourself, said Jürgen. Good grief, replied Siegfried. I lost my temper at this mass murder and gave him a piece of my mind. You don't secretly like Hitler, do you? Or should I say Adolf Schittler? You made him into a martyr. So?
So what? He's dead, isn't he? That, that's the main thing. I suppose so, Jürgen conceded, but it also resulted in the death of one Jew called Leibovitz. Professor Leibovitz told me his ancestors lived in Leonding at the time. I think we killed his ancestor. Siegfried looked sadly but said, we have to consider the situation with Stryker in charge. He was one of Hitler's henchmen. I think he was hanged at Nuremberg. They paused in thoughtful contemplation. If he is to be killed, I think we have one hell of a job to do, said Jürgen. Chapter 9. The Unexpected Surprise Siegfried was keen to observe the new world that he and Jürgen had altered, albeit unwittingly. He bought another book Julius Stryker had written called the poisonous mushroom, outlining anti-Jewish conspiracy theories. It was full of illustrations and most chilling of all, made for children. Siegfried returned with a bottle of wine and began drinking heavily. He needed a quick escape, coming to terms with the new realities he was dealing with. Have fun, I'll have a wander, said Jürgen as he headed out of the inn. He walked across the road to a clothing shop and saw a Jewish man walking towards him. A Jew I might be able to help, he thought to himself. Jürgen nodded hello and smiled. The Jew stared at him intently and finally said, Paul Kustler, we meet again. Excuse me, I don't believe we've ever met before. The man looked enraged. You're the Stapo officer who brutalised me and my wife. Did you know she had a mental breakdown and committed suicide after your interrogation? You've got it all wrong. I've never seen you in my life. I'm someone else. Please go away and leave me alone. The Jew screamed and grabbed Jürgen around the collar, attempting to choke him. Jürgen was strong enough to knock the man unconscious, but he felt sympathy for him. People like him were the reason the mission had taken place. He would not lay a finger on the old man, but would this commotion jeopardise the mission? Before he could decide what to do, he heard a whistle blow loudly and an SS officer rushed across the street. He swung his baton as hard as he could at the Jew's skull. Less than a moment before, the man had swung Jürgen around. The baton went smack into Jürgen's forehead and everything went black. Siegfried rushed out of the bed, bewildered and drunk, barely comprehending. He looked out in horror and saw Jürgen unconscious on the pavement and an SS officer screaming, Look what you made me do to this gentleman! He then began bashing the Jews senseless until a pool of blood lay underneath him. The SS officer called out for help and he saw six construction workers rush over to assist Jürgen. The SS man picked up his bag and the construction workers carried Jürgen all the way to the local hospital, a kilometre away.
Siegfried was not even dressed and he had to act quickly. He was shocked at the sheer callousness of the beating the Jew had received and the contrasted humanity and efficiency lended to Jürgen, who was presumed non-Jewish. The SS officer Helmut Trudeau, an Alsatian of mixed French ancestry, felt ashamed at his blunder and was determined to make it up to the man he had hit. He also feared ridicule by his peers. It was embarrassing. One hour later, Dr. Adolf Martens emerged from the ward. I know your reputation as a tough man with a baton, so that blow you gave him had to hurt, he said with a chuckle. Helmut cringed. You only fractured his skull. He needs to rest for a few days. Well, since he is unconscious, I will use my policing powers to search his bag, determine his identity and notify any family of his unfortunate accident. <clears throat> he looked through the bag. He noticed several diamonds and raised his eyebrows. There was also a little bit of money, some detailed maps of Germany, the book about the Hitler family murder, a large glossy coloured science book and an envelope. Aha! That would yield some information. Helmut opened the letter. To his surprise it was written in Hebrew. The doctor raised his eyebrows. Do you know anyone who speaks Hebrew? Helmut asked, not expecting a yes. Ask the chaplain. If he has a theological degree, he might have studied Hebrew. Really? Yes, really, I'll go get him. Ten minutes later, Father Engelbrecht looked over the letter. He frowned and kept running his finger over several of the lines. Well, Reverend, asked Helmut. He looked gravely at Helmut. Here's the translation. Dear Dr. Einstein, these two men, Jürgen and Siegfried, are Jews on a vital mission to save our people from extermination and mass killings at the hands of anti-Semitic German totalitarians. Please take my advice if you can use your scientific knowledge to save our people and wreak vengeance on the Germans or anyone else who tries to harm us. An atomic bomb can be created by splitting an atom and can kill millions of people, leaving an area of many kilometres with poisonous radiation for decades to come. You need to flee to the nations on Earth that are the most Jew-friendly, the British Empire or the United States of America. On the back of this letter are mathematical formulas for the atomic bomb and other lethal nuclear weapons. I have included a science book with instructions on how to make computers, spaceships, flying saucers and robots that will bolster our allies in an arms race against Germany. Please act now to save our people, Jürgen and Siegfried will sacrifice their lives to ensure you get to safety. Yours sincerely, Professor Shaul 
Leibovitz. Helmut gasped. Just then, SS officer Carl Ingers walked in. Oh, I remember this man. He's on his way to work in the steel mines in the north. I met him and his friend last night looking for an inn. They lied to you, said Helmut. He's a Jewish spy planning the destruction of Germany. Karl froze. Then his eyes narrowed. I see, he said calmly. The back of the letter was covered with formulas that would have taken over a century for scientists to discover. It was now in the hands of the SS. Ten officers, heavily armed, swarmed into the hospital. It suddenly occurred to Carl that Jürgen's accomplice might still be at the inn, so he began to head back with three officers. Siegfried had already fled, but had told the innkeeper he would be there for a few more days. He had then sneaked down an alleyway and shaved off his beard and moustache to change his appearance. Chapter 10. The Truth Serum Jürgen woke up the next morning. He felt a metal device around his wrists, and when he raised his head, he saw bars and an armed SS man outside them. His mind reeled, trying to remember his last thoughts and what had led to this occurring. Had he been arrested for his scuffle with the Jew outside the clothing shop? Chances are they didn't know he was a Jew and would punish the other man. In walked Dr Martins and an SS guard. What am I doing here? Is this prison? Did I do something wrong? he asked in a sleepy voice. Relax, said the doctor, you've done nothing wrong. You're not under arrest. You're here for your own protection. We want to help you. We are your friends. He then stuck another sedative into Jürgen. Jürgen woke up hours later. He saw officers Karl and Helmut facing him. He remembered Karl, but in his SS uniform. Instead, they wore black suits and black skull caps with Jewish prayer shawls. Was he dreaming? This was bizarre. He then received a sharp needle in his shoulder and realised he was not dreaming. We're Jews just like you. We're on your side. Just answer our questions, then we can save the Jewish people. Jürgen's truth serum had the effect of putting him into a dreamlike state. He seemed to be floating in and out of consciousness while two Jews were asking him about the mission. Or were they really SS officers? No, they were Jews. It must have been the medication making him paranoid. Or was it? At some undefined later time, Jürgen sat wide awake in a cell with a cup of coffee, piece of toast and salami. He devoured his daily meal. That and a pea soup in the evening was the only thing he was given all day. It appeared to be a prison, not a hospital. Karl and Helmut 
had clashed over the handling of this case being bitter rivals. But Carl, what if time travel is possible? The problem with you is you read too much science fiction fantasies. There is no way we should consider the claims of a man who is psychiatric. It would be embarrassing to dignify a man like that. Helmut was unperturbed. You said it yourself, the man is extremely dangerous and what harm would it do for the SS or German youth to have a hike up Mount Simile? Good exercise never did any harm. Carl nodded. And he is dangerous. But as your superior officer, I am giving you a direct order. You will not contact the SS in Breinhof. You will not send them on a wild goose chase. I have a reputation to consider. Then he left. Helmut picked up the phone as soon as he was sure Carl was gone for the night. Hello, operator. Put me through to the German youth division in Brainhof. He waited a few moments. Hello, sir. This is Helmut Trudeau of the SS in Rundstadt. Chapter 11. A Bad Omen. Siegfried was forced to head back to Brainhof as quickly as possible. He had wanted to rescue Jürgen but was shocked to see how heavily guarded the police station, hospital and town was. He even observed that Jürgen was transferred from the hospital in an armoured car. This and the fact that the letter for Einstein was missing alarmed him. He knew Jürgen would never give anything away, even under torture, but what if they had truth serums? No, not 1930s Germany. At least that was his assumption. But what if the SS got a hold of the time machine? He had to stop it. All the information contained therein might bring about a Jewish apocalypse. Through stress and adrenaline, he finally reached Breinhof. He had another hour to reach the mountain, ignoring exhaustion and fatigue. He had a hand grenade in the time machine to blow it up and hopefully erase all knowledge of it. In a tree near the foot of the hill sat about 20 crows in a dead tree. It was eerily creepy as a bad omen in Jewish folklore. He began his ascent and noticed a lot of footprints and flattened grass as he neared the cave. He climbed some more. The red sun was nearly down and he had no way of seeing properly in the dark. His stomach knotted up as he approached the cave. He saw small stones scattered everywhere. What he saw, or rather didn't see, made him faint. Siegfried woke up hours later in utter darkness and wailed. The empty cave had broken his heart. He felt like an accursed wanderer all alone in the world whose only friend had gone into captivity. <coughs> Was there any hope left for the Jewish people. Chapter 12. Meeting the Reichsfuhrer SS. The phone rang. Hello, 
Officer Carl Ingus speaking. Hello Ingus, this is SS High Command Conrad Runstead, Secretary to Reichsfuhrer SS Reinhard Heydrich. Carl gulped. I am ringing on behalf of Heydrich himself to congratulate your fine outstanding subordinate who alerted the German youth in Brainhof to a sophisticated machine invented by our enemies. Karl nearly fell out of his chair. So our prisoner was telling the truth, asked Karl. Indeed, and Trudeau is taking your place because he risked ridicule to ensure that no stone was unturned in protecting our nation from terrorists. Karl was livid. He said, please reconsider this. Officer Trudeau is an impulsive officer with many bad character traits. He's not pure German either. He's a Frenchman from Alsace-Lorraine. I'm sure this is tough news, but remember, Germany is a meritocracy, ruled by the best. People are judged by results. Just learn from your mistakes. We would rather a Frenchman who does a good job for the fatherland than a German like yourself. In a few hours, we will be arriving in Rundstadt and the prisoner will be transferred to Berlin. The letter meant for Einstein will be given to the top German scientists to hold the world hostage. Three days later, Jürgen sat behind a desk in a room with an interrogator. Next to the interrogator were Helmut and Karl with Reinhard Heydrich himself. I have nothing to say, he said before they even asked a question. Perhaps we don't even need you to say anything, said the interrogator. I never thought I would say this, but a Jew spy like you deserves a medal from Chancellor Stryker himself. Jürgen stared dumbfounded. I have no idea what you're talking about. You're getting nothing out of me. Of course you have no idea. You were semi-conscious when we got the information we needed. Jürgen looked intrigued. You told the truth about your plot to give atomic bomb technology to Herr Einstein. You told the truth about the amazing machine hidden in the cave. But did you tell the truth about killing the Hitler family over 30 years ago? Well, I don't know how old you are, sir, but your fingerprints are exactly the same as those found in 1903, which I might add were those of an adult. It leads me to the conclusion that your time machine story is true. Perhaps it is also true that time travel cannot be repeated. Who knows? We don't need a time machine with all the awesome technology we found aboard your ship and in the formulas you had. I'm no scientist, but According to them, everything on your formula sheets has so far proven correct. Holy cow, they know everything, he thought to himself. So, if you choose to say nothing, we care very little. You've already outlived your usefulness. 
Jürgen was overcome by a desperate desire to stay alive, simply so he could reverse the disaster about to overcome the world. Once the world knows about me, the British and Americans will infiltrate you, get your technology, improve on it, and annihilate you. Except they don't even know you exist or about our discovery of the time machine, came the calm reply. We even lied to the German youth who found that machine and told them it was a vault of dirty Jewish money used by the Rothschild bankers and their Masonic allies at the New World Order. No newspapers have reported anything, nor have any of the Jewish-run Western media. You and your Aryan master race will fail, said Jürgen. What's an Aryan? said the interrogator, looking amused. Are they not the brown-skinned people of Persia and India? We Germans are not Aryans. Jürgen was dumbfounded. The interrogator continued. Is that why you had some strange theory that we would use the swastika? An irrelevant foreign Buddhist symbol? Jürgen said, you Nazis will be obliterated. The interrogator smiled. And who may I ask is the Nazi party you keep mentioning? The Nazi party got 1% in the elections. And because they shared the same ideals as us, their founder, Anton Drexler, joined our German Socialist Party of his own free will. Jürgen could barely comprehend how much history had been altered by Hitler's assassination. He was marched into a cell with another inmate. <clears throat> Jürgen stared at his cellmate in disbelief. He was a small, thin man with dark hair, cleanly shaven and beady brown eyes. Jürgen gasped, I, I know you, you're... you're... He smiled and said, I get that reaction from a lot of my fans. I suppose you want my autograph. Not a problem. He grabbed his ink pen and wrote on a piece of paper. He then handed it to Jürgen. It read, Joseph Goebbels. How did you end up in prison, said Jürgen. Well, he replied, that's the danger of being a film producer. Women are constantly trying to seduce me to get a role in a film. Then they accuse me of rape and sexual assault. But I'm innocent. I would never do a thing like that, he said bitterly. The real fault lies with these fascist bastards who have taken over this country. Jürgen nodded, completely fascinated. Then another thing caught his eye. Can I read your newspaper? Sure, said Goebbels, who handed it to him. He had never found a newspaper so intriguing. One article talked about the billionaire businessman brothers, Albert and Hermann Goering, who were attempting to launch Germany's first commercial airline service, Lufthansa. Another article talked about Germany's Olympic-winning champion of fencing, Heinrich Himmler. 
He was thinking of retiring from sport and returning to chicken farming. As the months ticked by, Jürgen was offered privileges in exchange for information. They wanted information on the future, even if he had no idea about the mechanics of computers and the many other conveniences of the late 21st century. Merely giving them the idea would help them in leaps and bounds. Merely knowing about this technology would tell them what human innovation was capable of. Needless to say, Jürgen refused to cooperate with the authorities. So they simply injected him with a truth serum, then asked him masses of questions. Once they had gotten enough out of him, they decided he was ready to die. He was informed of his execution. Joseph Goebbels gave him a hug, having developed a keen friendship with his cellmate. Jürgen knew this was not the same Goebbels, and the future had altered his character. Stryker had never impressed him the way Hitler would have. He had found another passion in life, movies and weak-willed women. But he was every bit of a propaganda expert at defending himself and making excuses for his bad behaviour. Jürgen wondered if he had made the world a better place by eliminating Hitler and changing the destinies of Himmler, Goering and Goebbels. I tried my best, he thought to himself, as he faced the firing squad and refused a blindfold. Chapter 13. The Brain Drain. On a frosty evening, a distinguished gentleman sat alone in his lounge room in front of the fireplace in deep thought. He was a middle-aged man with dark hair and a thick moustache. He had to make a decision to cut his losses and leave his homeland for Britain or the United States. He was aware that the Stapo were doing surveillance on him and he was hated by the state. Outside the house, behind a tree, sat Paul Kustler, a Stapo officer in a long trench coat and hat, so typical of this clandestine order. He had a sound detector gadget to monitor him. He hated this shift, especially in the middle of winter, and he knew his target did nothing but reading or tuning into the radio. For the one hundredth time in the shift, he checked his watch. Another hour and a half to go. Little did he realise that he too was being watched by another secret agent. Kustler felt a sharp, jagged pain rip violently across his throat. While his mind was coming to terms with this, his corpse collapsed on the snow. Siegfried grabbed the officer's badge, ID and sound detecting gadget. Then he headed to the front door. Yes, who knocks? Came a voice from behind the door. Dr Einstein, this is Stapo agent Paul Kustler. I need to speak to you immediately. The door opened with a look of dread on Einstein. Siegfried pushed past, then threw off his hat. 
What do you swine want with me at this ungodly hour, he began. Then Siegfried showed him the ID. But that's not you. What's going on? I'm not really a Stapo man. I'm a Jew like you, working to save our people. But the Stapo are watching me all the time, came his abrupt reply. Siegfried pulled out his blood-stained knife from his pocket. I've already taken care of that, replied Siegfried. Now listen, sir, we don't have much time. I come from the future. I arrived at this time via a time machine. Einstein stared at him in stunned disbelief. I see. You're a lunatic and a killer. Siegfried lifted the knife. You must listen to me, sir. Einstein was smart enough not to try the patience of this killer that had just entered his house. As I said, I'm from the future and I came here for a time machine. Forgive me for being a little sceptical. Do you have some evidence? replied Einstein. Siegfried opened his coat and handed a glossy 100-page magazine to the scientist. Einstein looked at the front cover, the Journal of Physics and Astrophysics. His eyes widened in amazement. He was equally overwhelmed by the quality of the colour photos and the amazing discoveries, some of which he had predicted. Turn to page 64, if you will, suggested Siegfried, but he was transfixed on an article about the Big Bang. Eh? Page 64. Please turn there. Einstein looked stunned as he examined a photo of a much older version of himself. Now he looked up at Siegfried in awe and respect. Over the next half hour, Siegfried explained the situation and what had led to their mission and the results. It could be, said Einstein, that you travelled from a different time. Another possibility is that you travelled from a parallel universe. There could be another universe where Hitler is defeated, such as your world, another where he succeeds, another where one of his henchmen succeed, like my world, another where he is a kind, benevolent leader who loves the Jews. And to complicate matters, there could be many, many, many parallel universes. One where Napoleon succeeds, or doesn't succeed, or Kenji's Khan succeeds, etc. There could be millions. The universe is a strange place. Siegfried finally said, Sir, the whole Jewish world, as well as the freedom-loving democracies, need you to be whisked away to safety. Come with me tonight. We have not a moment to waste. We can shave off your moustache and change your appearance with cosmetics. I have forged papers to alter your identity. I also have tickets to take you on the next ship bound for America. Give me until tomorrow afternoon, replied Einstein. I have to get together my most important scientific observations and I will not leave them in the enemy's hands. Give me your address. I will come over tomorrow. In the meantime, let's dispose of the body. Where? asked Siegfried. Albert said, I have a basement 
we can wrap the body in sheets there and we will be long gone before it starts decomposing. Siegfried left Einstein's house less than five minutes before the next Stapo officer arrived to do surveillance. The Stapo agent was carrying two buckets of water and in his pocket was a spanner and screwdrivers. At 3am, the agent walked up to the cement steps leading up to the entrance of the house. He unscrewed the railings that were installed for safety, but left them in place. Then he poured the water over the cement steps. The next morning, Einstein, who had gotten very little sleep, walked into his kitchen for some much-needed coffee. He heard a noise in his front yard. In wide-eyed astonishment, he saw a youth of about 12 raising a large iron baton as he smashed one of the large gnomes outside the front garden. Why, you little shit, he yelled. As he rushed out of the house, he lunged, only to find slippery ice on the stairs. As he was violently thrown forward, he just managed to grab the railing in time, only to see it collapse, and he fell headfirst on the cement. One of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century was smashed, literally. As he lay concussed on the cement, he sensed two men in trench coats walking around him. Help me, he moaned. This will help you out, said the Stapo agent, as he poured a bucket of ice-cold water over the immobilised Einstein. They lifted the railing back into place and screwed it in securely. Then they walked into his house and served themselves a cup of coffee. After the coffee, they began searching. They found the future science magazine, his packed suitcase with his valuable scientific discoveries, and the dead Stapo officer. They walked out of the house with the science magazine and his discoveries to hand over to the German intelligence. About two hours later, a neighbour found Einstein and called the ambulance. He was suffering from violent head injuries and hypothermia. The paramedics did their best to save his life, but he had died before they even got to the hospital. Just before Siegfried headed off to Einstein's home, he heard an announcement made over the radio. This is the Chancellor, Julius Stryker, with a message for Germany, announced the radio host. Then Stryker spoke. It is with deep regret that we must announce the tragic death of our brilliant scientist, Albert Einstein. It appears he had a fall on the steps of his home and suffered a brain concussion. Neighbours found him and called the ambulance, but they were unable to save his life. I extend my condolences to the family and friends of Herr Einstein. Siegfried was stunned. 
he approached the house from a great distance and saw SS and Starpo officers crawling in and out. It was time for his next plan. Chapter 14 World War II It was now 1938. Two years ago, the Anschluss occurred, where Germany annexed Austria and seized Sudetenland off Czechoslovakia and the Ruhr region off France. The Western powers had threatened war, but when push came to shove, they were unwilling to risk a world war just to prevent some ethnic German enclaves from joining the fatherland. They were also intimidated by new technology that Germany appeared to have developed. The British politician Winston Churchill had denounced this appeasement and was planning a motion in Parliament for sanctions against Germany. Tragically, he was beaten to death by intruders in his home and they had set his home alight before leaving. Police had very little evidence to track down the killers. It was a perfect crime. The Germans had a battle-hardened army that gained experience in Spain helping General Franco defeat communism. Despite this alliance, they were still able to forge a pact with the Soviet Union. Stalin sent his foreign minister Molotov to negotiate a mutual plan for Poland. Molotov suggested partitioning Poland where Germany would get two-thirds and Russia would get back its stolen land. Molotov returned and informed Stalin that Germany just wanted its pre-World War I borders taken by Poland and Russia could seize the rest of the country. Germany would blockade any nation that tried to assist the Poles. This pleased the Soviet hierarchy immensely. Now began the German victory in the propaganda war. Germany demanded Poland return the corridor. Poland's nationalistic government refused to talk with them. Britain and France threatened Germany with war should they take even an inch of land. Poland braced itself for an attack on its western border. Then Germany unleashed a weapon. They began denouncing European colonialism all over the world, especially Britain and France. In a very short period of time, millions of Africans and Asians were fired up and ready for freedom from colonial domination and humiliation. The news was spread all over the world via radio, newspapers and word of mouth. US President Franklin D. Roosevelt voiced his support for this notion and said that he compared the millions of Indians under British rule to the American revolutionaries of 1776. Not to be outdone, the Soviet Union voiced its support for the end of African and Asian colonialism. No longer were the Soviets planning a takeover of Germany along with the rest of Europe. They started focusing their eyes on the masses of land in Asia and Africa. 
before the British and French could even consider war with Germany, they were fighting mass uprisings all over the world. In the British East Africa Protectorate, a group called the Mau Maus started guerrilla attacks killing British colonists in the country. All over North Africa, the French and Italians were being killed and driven out by Arab and Berber rebels. The colonists struck back with mass killings and massacres of their colonial serfs. But the cat was out of the bag. Britain and France needed to move swiftly and make an example out of Germany. And so began World War II. Germany, on April the 1st, 1939, invaded Poland. Britain and France immediately declared war. The Germans smashed down Poland's border and ravaged their fellow fascist neighbour. The Poles put up fierce resistance and the Germans moved slowly. Then two days later, the Soviet Union attacked Poland from the east. Poland's army was thrown into disarray. Germany, after one week, had regained its former land, and they did not advance more than a kilometre beyond. The Polish army continued firing on the Germans for two more weeks until the Polish government ordered them to concede defeat. Now they focused solely on resisting the Soviets. Germany refused to withdraw refused to condemn the Soviet invasion and refused to negotiate with the Allies. After two months, the rest of Poland was a satellite of the Soviet Union. The Poles who remained in Germany were given the choice of expulsion or assimilation as Germans. Most chose the latter. By September 1939, the Netherlands and Belgium had joined the blockade of Germany, not wanting to lose their overseas colonies. France invaded along their border at Alsace-Lorraine. The fighting was slow, then fighter jets began bombing the French. The French were unable to detect these bombers with their radars. While they were busy fighting along the border, Germany launched a blitzkrieg through the Low Countries and then from Belgium launched into northern France. The French military had been annihilated by flying saucers firing lasers onto the soldiers and their military hardware. The French were dying by the dozen for every German killed. Most of the French elites fled to Britain to form a government in exile. One elderly statesman stayed behind, the French Premier and war hero, Marshal Philippe Petain. A truce was made in the city of Vichy. Stryker met Petain. He made the following conditions. France must declare permanent neutrality for the next 100 years. France must immediately withdraw from her colonies and renounce all claims to them and demand all French people in the colonies return to France. France must return Alsace-Lorraine to Germany and France must denounce the government in exile as illegitimate.
If these conditions were met, Germany would withdraw all troops and leave France in the control of Patang. All French POWs would be released and allowed to return home. Germany's offer of an iron fist in a velvet glove was not easily refused and Patang signed the truce. The whole world had just witnessed the defeat of the French government and its own leader renounced control of their vast empire. All over the Arab world, former French colonies were falling into the hands of the Ba'athist ideology of Arab nationalism and secularism. Conservative Islamic fundamentalists were hunted down and liquidated in power struggles that followed. All over Africa, the German victory over their European colonial masters had proven they were not invincible and they could be defeated. While this was happening, Japan was building its empire over East Asia. They claimed they were freeing them from colonial rule. The Dutch, who refused to return home from the Dutch East Indies, were being killed with machetes. They simply could not control a colony where most people no longer feared them. Some of the liberated people told the Japanese they wanted a united country called Indonesia. But the Japanese refused, not wanting a strong superpower to rival them in the future. Instead, every island became its own independent country, including West Papua, Java, Sumatra and Borneo, etc. But Britain was not going to give up without a fight. At Dunkirk, thousands of British soldiers had been massacred by the Germans. The few survivors were now prisoners of war. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared all-out war. He could rely on Australia, New Zealand and Canada. But all over Africa and the Indian subcontinent, British rule had been overthrown. A handful of British were able to flee from India to Australia by ship. The rest were killed by mobs wielding machetes, pitchforks and burning torches. The peace-loving Mahatma Gandhi had been assassinated in 1940 by Indian nationalists sponsored by Japan. The RAF bombed German cities like Dresden, Hamburg and Hanover. Two-thirds of the British fighter planes were shot down by sophisticated anti-aircraft technology in the first week of bombing. Then began the sinking of the British Navy. Admiral Eric Rader led the attack. Sophisticated aquatic robots shaped like fish attached themselves to the British ships and aircraft carriers and let off devastating explosions. Before they knew what had happened, these massive behemoths were sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Britannia no longer ruled the waves. Stealth fighters began bombing the munitions factories and army bases. Eventually, Britain offered a truce, thinking they would get a similar deal to the French. But Germany demanded unconditional surrender. With no air force and no navy, they could only arm civilians in the hope 
of a future insurgence against occupation. Germany continued bombing their military factories until the British government sued for peace, but armed insurgents vowed to fight on. Julius Stryker marched into England with a massive army and occupied London. They fought for three months before they had fully controlled the country and executed tens of thousands of British partisans. Wales was put in control of Welsh nationalists as an independent country and they banned the English language. They did the same for Scotland. Walls were built to divide Great Britain. Northern Ireland was handed over to the Irish Free State. The Union Jack was banned, since it made no sense with four divided nations. The British Empire was declared null and void. Canada, Australia and New Zealand denounced this action and declared themselves the remnants of the British Empire. But it was a decapitated empire. They started looking to the United States for an alliance. The United States fiercely denounced fascism, but faced a backlash from millions of German and Irish Americans. England became a republic with Oswald mostly as dictator and Lord Hawhaw as the Minister of Propaganda and Public Enlightenment. The white and red flag of St George became the symbol of England without Britain. The royal family was executed. The national anthem, God Save the King, was replaced with Land of Hope and Glory. The English Republican Army was formed with the help of the Irish Republican Army and the many disenfranchised working class Englishmen. Its purpose was to keep the English people in line and maintain a pro-German dictatorship. The Netherlands, England and the Flemish region of Belgium were made part of a pan-Germanic empire. The French-Belgian region was put under the rule of Leon de Grel. Benito Mussolini was outraged at the loss of his Italian colonies. He declared war on Germany. Germany invaded northern Italy, seized South Tyrol and added it back to the fatherland. Mussolini was killed after a mysterious flying saucer opened fire and incinerated his limousine in Rome. He was replaced by Marshal Pietro Badoglio, who accepted the terms of peace. Italy must relinquish its empire and recognise South Tyrol as part of Germany. Germany also forced Italy to become democratic and the fascist government was replaced, much to the joy of the overwhelming majority. Nevertheless, they inherited an unstable democracy with about 11 prime ministers every 10 years. Chapter 15. The Other Jewish Homeland Siegfried looked on in shock and awe after finishing another hard day's work at the steel factory. He was in the cinema getting the latest newsreels. The Battle of Britain had been lost and the British people were divided and being brainwashed. France had lost their empire. But what incentive did they have to fight the Germans? 
The Germans had withdrawn all troops and no one in France wanted to provoke another invasion. There would be no heroic French resistance. They may have lost their empire, but they still had their country. And by becoming neutral, France no longer had to worry about so many military disasters. Instead, they could focus on enjoying life with fine wines, artistic endeavours and holidays on the French Riviera. Siegfried used forged papers and boarded an international flight for Mongolia. Several weeks later, he was the only white man in a battalion of Chinese soldiers fighting for Chiang Kai-shek. It was now 1940. The Soviets had suffered over one million casualties in their botched invasion of Finland. Finland had refused to give an inch of their land after the ceasefire. Soviet intelligence found overwhelming evidence of German support for Finland. There were also tens of thousands of German soldiers who had volunteered to fight for the Finns. There were other reports of Germans giving guns to the Polish resistance. They had violated their pact. Stalin publicly accused them of violating their treaty and announced war. Two weeks later, Hundreds of tanks began shelling the border of Germany from Soviet-occupied Poland. German panzer tanks retaliated and destroyed many. After a few months of fighting, Germany had driven back the Soviets. Then Germany announced that it would liberate Poland from communist oppression. While the Soviet army attacked along the Polish border, the Soviet navy attacked Germany's north coast. The navy suffered an unmitigated disaster and most of their ships were sunk. Germany's admiral Karl Dönitz led the victory. While this occurred, Finland and Germany invaded Karelia and it was annexed to Finland. Poland was liberated and now grateful to Germany for being rescued from the NKVD's reign of terror. They had no trouble installing a puppet regime. Molotov announced over radio that Germany would be defeated by the Russian winter, just as Napoleon had. Instead, the Germans, along with their Finnish, Polish, Spanish and English allies, invaded Ukraine. Ukraine was declared an independent country from the Soviet Union and free from atheistic communism. They handed out guns to the entire population. The grateful Ukrainian locals began lynching the communists wherever they could be found. Ukraine was now a liberated, loyal ally that would supply millions of tonnes of grain and fighting men to liberate the entire Soviet Union. They headed north and liberated Belarus. Then they headed into Russia. All ethnic groups such as Chechens, Mordvins, Kalmyks and Tatars were given their own ethno-state. The rest became the new independent Russia, free from communist control. A foreign army could never occupy and control Russia. 
But a liberation army didn't need to. They just needed to arm the Russian people and let them get their revenge on Stalin's servants. The Soviet elites fled east. General Vlasov was now sole ruler of Russia. Most of the Jews were evacuated with the Soviet army. Since there were widespread massacres ordered by Julius Stryker. There were no gas chambers or concentration camps. They simply adopted the Soviet tactic of a bullet in the back of the head. The Jews had fled in their millions for the only Jewish homeland in the world, the autonomous Soviet Republic of Birobidjan, off in Siberia, near China. The Soviets armed them in case of a fascist invasion. Every house in Birobidjan had firearms. The population had swelled to 8 million. By 1944, the Soviets controlled only the eastern half of Siberia. They were facing betrayal and desertion at an alarming rate. The elite Soviets fled south to China for protection from Mao Zedong. They asked for a united communist nation of Siberia and China under their leadership. Mao welcomed them. Then he massacred them and assumed the mantle of world communist chairman. But communism had lost its credibility and with no outside support, Mao's Red Army fell to a crushing defeat by the nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek. Then began a ferocious war of independence against their brutal Japanese overlords. The United States entered the war and distributed weapons to the Chinese. China formed a pact of defence with Birobidjan, Mongolia, Tibet and Korea. They attacked Japan and almost overwhelmed them. Tokyo was levelled by savage bombing. The Emperor of Japan was lynched and his body publicly hung up. The Japanese suffered millions of casualties, but Japan was rescued at the last moment by their Russian and German fascist allies who had taken all of Russia except Birobidjan. Birobidjan was heavily armed and backed by China and America, so they gained their freedom as a Jewish homeland and had colonised an area five times their original size. A wall was built between Russia and Birobidjan. Siegfried settled in there and became a commanding officer in the Birobidjan military. He met and married Margot Frank, a Dutch refugee from the Netherlands who had fled to safety with her little sister Anne and parents Otto and Edith. They had to choose between hiding in a secret annex or fleeing east. They had chosen the latter. And so for the next few decades the Cold War dragged on between fascist nations such as Germany, Spain, Russia and Japan against the Western democracies of Canada, Korea, China, the USA, Australia and New Zealand.
the Western discovery of nuclear weapons kept the other side in check. Siegfried was relieved to live in this Jewish homeland. There were no sunny beaches and the freezing winters and undesirable land explained why the Russians and Germans didn't bother invading. Besides, North Africa and the Middle East had been nuked by the fascist nations who felt threatened by the Islamic revolutions of the 1960s. A fascist revolution led by Fidel Castro rose to power in Cuba. He was overthrown and assassinated during the Bay of Pigs invasion. Fascist regimes also became a common occurrence in Latin America with frequent American interference into these regimes. Julius Streicher remained dictator of Germany until his death in 1965 at the age of 80. He was replaced by the naval hero turned politician Karl Dönitz. Dönitz was a hardline fascist. In honour of Stryker, a giant statue designed by Albert Speer was erected in Berlin and it was bigger than the Statue of Liberty. Dönitz ruled until his death in Christmas 1981. He was replaced by his deputy, Rudolf Hess, who was more moderate. The 1980s brought about great change. France and Italy, who were influential members of the non-aligned movement, negotiated Pope John Paul II's visit to Poland and US President Ronald Reagan's visit to Germany. Reagan pleaded with Germany and Russia to end their arms race with the West. He made a passionate speech and said, Mr Hess, tear down that statue. Rudolf Hess reluctantly introduced liberal reforms and legalised the internet to the general public in 1982. In September 1989, the 95-year-old Hess died from a stroke. His death led to mass demonstrations calling for democracy. A mob tore down the Berlin statue of Stryker. This iconic moment led to demonstrations all over the fascist zone of influence. By 1992, the Cold War was completely over. Fascist regimes conceded defeat and opened the way for democracy on condition of immunity from prosecution. Japan and Birobidjan no longer lived under siege from hostile neighbours and the world had entered a new era in history. England, Belgium and the Netherlands asserted their independence from Germany. Germany recognised them. Calls for a reunion of Britain fell on deaf ears. After decades of separation and political cultural change, they no longer felt like one people. Collaborators with the German occupation went unpunished. Otherwise, they would have to prosecute half the country, including the most powerful and influential people. Collaborators get punished after a few years of occupation, but not 
after a few decades. And so, in 1994, the elderly Siegfried, along with his wife Margot and sister-in-law Anne, were allowed entrance back into Germany. Using the Freedom of Information Act, he was able to learn of the fate of his friend and the manner and date of his execution. At great personal cost to himself, he had a mausoleum erected in his honour in Berlin. Siegfried had spent decades of guilt and self-loathing for changing the past, for murdering Paula Hitler, and for getting drunk while Jürgen fell into the hands of the enemy. But he had learned to forgive himself. The entrance to the mausoleum read, Here lies Yaakov slash Jürgen, the heroic agent of the Jewish people who sacrificed his life in the struggle against genocide and tyranny. And Siegfried knelt down and wept. The End <laughs>